Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, my guest today is Sir Ken Alyssa, the business leader, philanthropist, Her Majesty's Lord Lieutenant of Greater London, and most recently appointed as the High Bailiff and Searcher of the Sanctuary at Westminster Abbey. But if you think today's story is one of a gilded life, you'd be wrong. Of his own childhood, Ken has spoken of a world of outside toilets and bomb sites as playgrounds, leading him to also note that it doesn't matter where you start from, it is where you want to try to get to that makes the difference. Realising that ambition has seen him named as the most powerful black person in Britain, and he's put the influence to good use as the founder of the Aleto Foundation, supporting the future leaders of tomorrow. Ken, welcome to Changemakers. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you? Uh, well, I'm very well, and I'm very well because I've been looking forward to interviewing you because your list of achievements is a kind of who's who. So it got me thinking about in terms of that that quote, in terms of where you want to get to um, that makes the difference. Where does Ken want to get to? To my embarrassment, I really rather got there, I think. In fact, I possibly overshot where I ever thought I, I might get to. Um, so I, I would say, and it's an embarrassing thing to say, I'm sort of at cruising altitude now and I'm, I'm happy to go where the wind takes me. I, I feel that what I've been able to achieve, what others have helped me to achieve, has just been so satisfying and satisfactory. And I'm able to give back and I shall continue to give back as long as God gives me breath. So I'm at cruising altitude, but it's, you know, it was a, it was a steep ascent. It's been a, well, and a steep ascent of a series of firsts that you have achieved. It got me thinking, you know, we often talk about, about the American dream, but I was thinking if, if there is a British dream, I mean, you, you seem to be living pretty close to that in terms of the achievements that you've, you've had under your belt. I mean, do, do you see it like that? I, actually, I think that's a great model. I, so I do give a rant. I'll spare your listeners today on this one, but I do give a rant. Having lived and worked in America, you know, I put the American dream where it belongs. There is something very special about this country and, and, the, and as you just coined it, the British dream. But it is, it is possible to do so much in the UK for a variety of reasons which are essentially systemic, i.e. they're here irrespective of the individual. And it's for the individual and others to help them take advantage of it. It's a very different concept from what I would call the American dream, which essentially is you start poor, you become rich. And so it's measured, the American dream is essentially measured in consumption, in possessions, etc. That isn't the British dream. Captain Tom Moore, for example, I think far better embodies the British dream than anything that has to do with making money. Mm. Is that is that part of the reason why your, your coat of arms is, is do well, do good? Yes, I, well, that's definitely my motto. I, I, I would I'd encourage everybody, well, actually, I'd encourage everybody to get a coat of arms because it is one of the most... <laughs> I realise that I'm an old man. <laughs> okay, that, that's that's the message to listeners. If we're all we're all going out to get a coat of arms. <laughs> uh, well, I can highly recommend it. I mean, I'm an old man, so coats of arms still sort of resonate with my generation. I think younger people tend to do it with tattoos. It's the same principle, which is that you decide what you stand for and you let, let everybody know. And the motto in English or French or German, but ideally or Latin, but ideally in English so that everybody can understand it, says you, you distill down what you care about, what you feel drives you, what make, makes makes you the person. And there are some fantastic mottos, none of which I will now quote, but some, some of them are fantastic mottos of sort of narcissism and aggression and so on. But but my life has been driven by those two things, really. I, I've my mother instilled in me a sense that you had to try and do your best at everything. And if you weren't very good at it, that was okay, but you had to try, do well. And then doing good is we live in a society where the thrill I find comes from helping other people. But I've also observed that when you help other people, they tend to help you. And so there's a wonderful reciprocity to it, back to the British dream. And so, yeah, do well, do good is, is what I and my family live by. 
It's, it's a lovely, it's a lovely phrase, lovely motto. I, I've got to know you over a number of years, Ken, and it strikes me that there are two Ken Alyssas. There is the solid establishment figure who is typified as Her Majesty's Lord Lieutenant of Greater London, but there is also the insurgent entrepreneur, and I've heard you speak recently. I mean, it, it, it strikes me that there are almost like train tracks in your persona, and it's therefore difficult to sort of sort of say, well, describe Ken to me. I mean, a lot of people will say like, phrases like inspirational when they listen to you speak. But in terms of how you see yourself, establishment or entrepreneur, which 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 one of those sort of sits most easily? Oh, well, well, I think British. <laughs> I think British is what I would say. But but we are those things, aren't we? It's a uh, if you if you were to if you were to try to boil down what makes this country great, I think you get fairly close to those two dimensions. There might be a couple of other adjectives to be popped in as well, but I, I think that gets close to it. And if you think back, and, and it's easy for us to do this, to the 18th, 19th century, the first industrial revolution, the great things that we were able to create, that amazing spark of invention and creativity and disruption, that, you know, that, run, that still runs through our veins. I, I have no doubt about that. But at the end of the day, it was Queen Victoria, it is Queen Elizabeth, you know, there's, there's something else that we cleave to, which is special in this country. And I, I find myself in, in one of those two roles you just described, frequently trying to explain the monarchy and the constitutional monarchy to people, British people, not never mind foreign people, trying to explain, and it, it's actually quite complicated for people to understand, because it defies logic. It, you know, you, you can't get at it by saying, well, let's add A and B together. Well, it's a democracy, therefore. No, actually, it's much more visceral than that. It's anthropological. And so, yeah, I, I, I would say that the, those two strands are our nation. That, well, they are a nation, but that, I mean, they're very much you. I mean, I, I listened to a, a panel that you spoke on during Scale Up Week, where you spoke about diversity, but through the lens of gutless leadership in terms of organisations that hadn't stepped up. And it got me thinking is that, you know, if if one side of the establishment is about deference and about knowing your place, I, I don't think that's you at all, Ken. I mean, I think in many respects is that you want to create new rule books, new ways of doing things, move things on. I mean, is, is that a fair, is that a fair reflection? Well, actually, it's a really good point. So deference, no, I, well, I mean, I, I obviously do defer to Her Majesty the Queen, for example. So just to be clear, I, I'm a 10 out of 10 on deference when deference is relevant. But, but I, I would say actually it isn't about deference, it's about protocol. And, and protocol is, a, is essentially about the science of human relations. If you do this, then this happens. If you do this, then this happens. If you don't do this, then that doesn't happen. That's the logic of protocol. It's, it's the no surprises part of keeping a society together. You know, I, I, and, and you think, it doesn't really matter where you think about it, but you think about it, health and safety, driving down the road, meeting a stranger, walking down the road at night. There are certain things that you expect to happen that are, that are safe because you expect those things to happen. You know, we're not living in a jungle where everything is under, well, it's chaos. You know, you, you, it, we are very much in an ordered society. So if I change deference to protocol, yeah, I'm, I'm hot on protocol. There's a way to do things and there's a way not to do things. And the way to do it is a way that doesn't surprise people, but helps people feel comfortable and, and to fit in. But, but I'd also say you're, you're, no, you're not shy of disruption either. I mean, no, no, I, I, can see that. I can see an inherent contradiction in what I just said. <laughs> so, so it is probably worth unpacking that a little bit. So, but, I'm, but I'm with Shumpati here on the creative destruction. So it, it is for a purpose. So yeah, I'm not, a, I don't, uh, I'm not a vandal. I don't spray graffiti on walls. I don't do destructive things for the sake of destruction. I do things because I hope it will do better for everyone, do well and improve livelihoods, do good. Now, 
amongst your many accolades is that you were voted the most powerful black Britain some years ago. In in terms of what that meant to you, t- tell us about that. I, that's a very complicated question. First of all, I must point out that I was once the most powerful black Britain, but obviously I've been supplanted by other people because it's an annual award. An annual award, yes. yes. And I haven't got it in perpetuity. So I was once quite quite important, but that, that's long behind me now. I'm like those old people that get wheeled out in the Olympics, for example, to do commentary. Well, I remember in 1956, I got a <laughs> bronze medal for something. But the, but the, but the bigger point, there's, there's quite a lot of the adjectives of, of all of that, uh, and, and they are worth examination, particularly the black bit. Actually, it shouldn't really be black, it should be non-white. Uh, because actually black, it doesn't really mean anything. You know, if, you, if your parents came from the Caribbean in 1999 and you're growing up in this country, you're not the same as someone who came with the Windrush, Windrush generation, or if you, your parents came from Africa or, or, or... So actually, it isn't really a very helpful descriptive term, but, but it, well, it, no, it is helpful, I suppose, because it does, it's a Venn diagram, helpful, but it's full of people. And the real question is the people bit. But, but the most important point about that is the, the chap who invented this concept of the power list Michael Iboda, about, I didn't know now, 12, 14 years ago, his big decision was people don't realise that black people in the UK can do well because all the rhetoric they get about the the position of people of colour in the UK tends to come from America. The messages come culturally, politically from the States. Why were we teaching children about about Rosa Parks and, and Martin Luther King in our schools in this country when talking about the history of our nation. It's irrelevant to the history of our nation. And that is now thankfully being changed. So what Michael decided to do was let's get a catalogue of people who've achieved something in the UK who are of colour. And it was a wonder, the first year it came out, it was an amazing impact for lots and lots of people. It's now a staple each year. And, and it is remarkable. I'm very proud to have been in it. Okay, so you're proud to have been in it. In terms of what it means to you from an identity point of view in terms of what it means to, to sort of head up a list like that to you know sort of be be the the first black lord lieutenant of, of greater london and, and a whole range of other firsts as well i mean does that kind of pioneering role i mean do you self-identify with that is that important to you or 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 not well no it's very important uh, it fits in the do good bit it's very, very important. It's not a do well thing, it's a do good thing. That, I just hinted, there's a rhetoric in the UK that if you are a, a person, a not white person, who didn't go to public school and Eton and Oxford, or it is a public school and, and Oxford and so on, then you've got no hope in the country. That comes from people who want to divide and to destroy. And, and I, I don't belong to that group. So, so my mis- message is, if you see what I, well, in fact, back to Michael Oboda, I'll give you a much shorter answer. I was at a conference once discussing whether uh, role models were important for black families. And the answer was obviously yes. So we spent the conference not debating it, which was the plan, but discussing how we improved it. They're important for all families. Michael Oboda, the famous Michael Oboda, was the first time I met him, interrupted somebody speaking something and said, look, look, look at Ken. If Ken can do it, anybody can. And, and I, is, well, that, is that the alternative backhand? Well, it's, well, it's the alternative <laughs> motto, really, isn't it? And, <laughs> but but it's such a good point, and that's my message. So I enjoy breaking through so-called glass ceilings that don't really exist because it inspires others to stop believing the rhetoric that says you can't do it. And of course, one of the I suppose stories of of, of the recent past has been 
just the level of consciousness about social mobility as not, not only in terms of, of how far we've got to go, but what can actually be done about it. Now, your, um, your strategy for Greater London is titled Build Bridges. And um, how, how big is the bridge we need to build? That's in my capacity as Lord Lieutenant of Greater London. And I have a strategy which essentially is to take the mission of all Lord Lieutenants which is to uphold the dignity of the monarchy, i.e. the constitutional monarchy, i.e. the values of the nation, to hold that up. If I, if, I, if I reflect that in London, as opposed to other counties in the UK, and there are 98 of us, but in, but in London, what is London? It's, it's a potpourri of micro-communities, streets, estates, etc., 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 many of whom are unaware that they can participate in life in this country as equals. I, I had a meeting with a chap in my office in Whitehall, and he was late and he apologized for being late, but he got lost. And I said, oh dear, where, how did you come? Where did you come from? Tower Hamlet. How did you get here? I took the underground to Westminster Station. So how did you get lost? It's a straight road from Westminster Station to Trafalgar Square. And my office is halfway up there. And he said, well, I've, I've never been to the West End before. This was a man in his 40s, grew up in Tower Hamlet and quite a distinguished businessman. And he said, Ken, in my world, we always looked east when we thought about things. We never looked west. So there are people in London who are fulfilling lives who just don't participate in London. My ambition is to make as many people as I possibly can in London realise that it's their system, it's their country, it's their city, and they should be able to enjoy it. Hence the building bridges. I mean, uh, well, well let, let's stick with bridges then. I know we've got a prime minister that likes like to try and build bridges when he was when he was mayor of London. But I mean, in terms of in terms of your bridge, I mean. I just think about in terms of where we are right now, I think about the Euros as this sort of like example of the best and worst of us right now. So I, I don't know how you felt, but I first and I personally found, found it a moment of great national pride when you saw the players this great example of multicultural sort of England that I, I guess in terms of actually when, when they were stood, you know, singing the national anthem, this great example of what we have become as a nation to be quickly followed by the social media and and sort of you know the trolling and and all of this sort of like you know quite depressing elements of it which sort of does indicate that the metaphor of the bridge is a good one i suppose the question is how confident are you that it can be built well i'm totally confident and i and i i think the best thing about the euros unless one was an Italian, the best thing about the Euros... Well, they won it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Apart from that, it was... But, but the best thing about it, from my perspective, is it absolutely demonstrated the importance of recognising the application of talent to competitive advantage. And you quoted from a, an earlier rant of mine earlier on, but my issue with businesses is we're all competitive. So what you should be looking for is talent. Don't waste your time setting up quotas for black people and women and disabled people. Go get the best talent... And you will find, guess what? Black people, women, disabled people, white people, men, etc. You'll find the best talent. I'm very fond of saying the following point, that if you were a football club manager and you'd been a goalkeeper when you played football, would you only hire goalkeepers for your team? Of course you wouldn't. You know in, in sport inherently that you're looking for the best talent. But in business, we, we insist on we don't insist on it, but it's just a habit of trying to find people that went to the same school that one did, the same university, etc., etc. So I say, if, you, if a football scout sees a kid kicking a ball in the park and thinks there's talent there, they don't ask them what their father did or what level of degree they got. They worry about the talent. 
but this is this is the voice of the Ken I know, the positive optimist. But when you when you see the the very real uh, and very you know the very clear evidence of racism, of hate, of all of this, I guess the the barriers to everything that you're talking about, which is to which is to treat people fairly and realize the best of them. Does that unnerve you, or do you just think actually this is just the journey that you're on? Right. So there are two B to answer your question in the shortest possible way. But but there are two kinds of people really. There are good people and there are bad people. Actually, there are philanthropists and there are evil people to extreme do the extreme point in it. And and one of the one of the things not to worry about is the fact that there are some evil people who will do evil things. There are some bad people who do bad things. That's always been the case. The question really is, can we empower the good people, the non-evil, non-bad people, to feel safe and secure? And I, the, the Rashford mural incident is a brilliant example of my point. So some idiot sprays something stupid of questionable origin and motive, motive it turns out, and spelling. So, so there's, there's this ignorance spraying on the Rashford memorial. And you've seen the pictures now covered with messages of positivity and love. That's the UK. So one idiot is absolutely wiped out by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of non-idiots. The trouble is the non-idiots don't generally get the news headlines. And so we tend to read stuff about the idiots all of the time, but they are in the tiny minority. Think of Captain Tom again, 32 million pounds raised on a, on a 1,000 pound goal. So crap for forecasting, but 10 out of 10 for results. 32 million pounds paid by people to a man they would never meet for an organization they hope to never have to use to help strangers that they would never know. That's the UK. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned Marcus Rashford there. I mean, you know, obviously a great example of, of a young leader. And of course, young leaders are very much the focus of the Aletto Foundation. T- tell us a little bit about your work in, in establishing it and its goals. My frustration 10, 12 years ago when I when I co-founded, actually with Michael Avodu, whom I won't give any more checks to, but he's a good, good chairman. We're going to have to have him He's, on a, the he's show. a revolutionary, um, <laughs> but a quiet one. So yes, do do that. But when, when we sat down and we were looking at that, it was after the Powerless. So we originally called it the Powerless Foundation, now the Elite Foundation. But when we looked at it and we said, actually, there are all these kids of talent and they are being told they can't get on. So why don't we solve that problem by helping them get on? That's the logic. But in so doing, we'll change the system because we will get kids of talent with really interesting lived experiences that are not not common to someone that went to public school and Eton and Oxford, etc. So those lived experiences, and hopefully the system, i.e. the nation, will be more sensitive to the needs of a vast swathe of the population. So that was that was the original idea. It's deeply humbling how well it's gone. We've now got an alumni network nudging a thousand young people. They're doing remarkable, many of them, not all of them, doing remarkable things. It's a factory for liberating talent from children who didn't think they would be able to get anywhere. And our selection criteria are leadership. So we want people that are clear leaders. Mm. Have you got an example in mind of someone that's inspired you? Yes, there's a young lady called Leanne Armitage. Leanne Armitage grew up in a, in a house, in a flat in, um, in Peckham. She one night heard screaming and shouting outside, went to have a look and somebody had been knifed. Then the helicopter air ambulance arrived, took the injured person away. And Leanne decided at that moment, she will become a trauma surgeon. She then worked really hard at school, got a scholarship to a, actually to a public school, failed to get into medical school, got herself an internship in the House of Lords, managed to find someone to help her refill 
her application, got into medical school, just qualified last year as a doctor, into Alia. She's also created a charity uh, for, called Leanne's Marvellous Medics to get kids from minority backgrounds to get into medicine. And she's received a Queen's Award. She is a classic example of all the things that I believe to be inherent in the country. You can't do that in most of the countries in the world. You can do it here. Well, well, let's talk about your own sort of, the young Ken, actually, in terms of growing up in, in Nottingham, in terms of actually, I suppose, the future leader in the making. But tell us a little bit about your own childhood and how that shaped the person that you've become. I mean, I'll, 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 I'll give you a start of a 10. You, you described growing up as having a, a strong moral tone. I mean, is that, tell us a little bit about that environment and, and, and what, uh, what, what that shaped you or how that shaped you. Well, I am one of those statistics that you read about in the newspapers all the time. Single parent family. My father abandoned my mother and me soon after I was born. So I never knew him. He went back to, uh, to Nigeria. She had become estranged from her family. So she had to work. Obviously, she had to work, but she had to work particularly hard to keep us going, keep food on the, on, the, on, the, uh, on the plate and so on. We lived in crappy rental accommodation in various parts of, of two parts of Nottingham, actually one part of Nottingham, but two different, two different houses. And she, but she instilled in me the, uh, the joy of learning, which is one very important thing. And secondly, the need to do, as I've said before, to, to do well. And her moral compass was, she was a very argumentative lady, uh, something I've probably inherited, my colleagues would say, and also very mission focused. And I once said to my mother, mum, if you were to learn to prioritise things you got cross about, so dog dirt on the paper, on the pavement is one thing. And then what's gone wrong with the prime minister is a completely different thing. They're not equal, mum. And if you just put your energies into the ones that will make a big difference, you'll probably live a lot longer. She ignored that, lived to 99, or almost not, about two weeks off being 99, and all the time was constantly campaigning and challenging things. So when, after she died, I got her papers. I found all sorts of interesting documents of responses to letters she'd written, things she tried to change, including one from my headmaster, who she detested, considering to be subhuman as a teacher. And <laughs> he said... Dear Mrs. Alyssa, with the benefit of hindsight, I can see that perhaps the use of the word lazy to describe your son was overstated. However, I do think if he intends to go to university, he's going to have to do rather more work. And I, I remember being really cross at the time when we got that letter, but it absolutely spurred me on to get my act together, uh, which I'm sure is what he meant to do. But my mother had had a big fight with him before and after that. So so I got that moral compass from her. Do you, do you think that background has helped shape your own sense of self, your own narrative? I. I interviewed Gavin Esler, the the broadcaster, and and he said that you know stories that we tell we tell about ourselves are really important. So the greengrocer's daughter from Grantham becomes Margaret Thatcher. In terms of the young Ken, I mean, to what degree does that person explain the person you've become? Well, I, I attribute mostly to two things: my mother one, and then the, the kindness of strangers. I have no idea why in the fifties and the sixties people went out of their way to be kind to my mother and me and to help me do things, but but they did. And I can remember so many stories of people just for no other reason than they could helping me advance in my career and at school and, uh, and so on. So if I look back on that, people assume when you see the High Bailiff of Westminster Abbey, Search of the Sanctuary, Lord Lieutenant, etc., 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 they assume that I went to public school and then those things I keep railing against. So I, I, there's a presentation I give to young people which shows a picture of my house that I grew up in, the outside lavatory, the bath on the, on the wall and so on, juxtaposed to a picture of the Queen, Duke of Edinburgh and myself. And I say, you know, the, the journey between those two points is a really interesting one. And I draw a straight line between the two. And I say, 
it asks, it answers one question, can you do it? Yes, Michael Aboda's point. But the second thing, second slide, I then have a wavy line between the two. And I say, but it hasn't just been a straight line. I've had some stonking successes in my career, and I've had some unbelievably tear-jerking failures. And things have gone spectacularly wrong for me. I've been attacked. What, what, what have you learned? What have you learned from the failures, Ken? What, well, back to my mother, personal resilience. Clearly, uh, it reinforces one's sense of optimism because you can get out of it. You know, uh, no, there's a mental health point there, which so I don't want to dismiss that. But people that don't have a mental health pro proclivity to depression can you can get out of things. It goes back to your very first question, which is, where is one trying to get to? If all you're worried about is what's just happened to you, then there is no sense of hope. If you actually are trying to get somewhere, think of the mountain climber. You know, the weather changes. They don't give up climbing the mountain. They wait for something else to happen. So one has to keep one's eye on the summit throughout, throughout life. Well, well, I think that also is, is quite a good link into my, my next question, which is, you know, you established Restoration Partners, um, the, the merchant bank that, that really focuses on entrepreneur led companies. And there's quite an interesting phrase, I thought, about not letting the entrepreneurial flame be blown out. Tell us about, about what you about what that flame is and what the danger is to that flame. Well, an entrepreneur is somebody who and you are one, so you'll know this exactly, who has an idea about how the world will be a better place if only, and the if only is whatever the, the business is going to be, but the business is a vehicle to make that happen. So I don't know any true entrepreneurs, and I've worked with them now for 40 years, who think about money as their driver. Clearly, it's a feature, but it's not why they do it. They want to improve the world. There are people who do think about money, and then they're not entrepreneurs, they're business people or whatever. One of the tragedies in business is so much of business is dominated by very large players where the people at the top, and I, and I say this and I look forward to them suing me, the people at the top are much more focused on how much they make, how much they are paid than on their customers or on their staff or making the world a better place. And that, that sort of slide in capitalism is a concern for me. But the antidote are the disruptors who come barreling along behind and say, well, actually, there's a better way of doing something. And you see it happening in most sectors. And making a difference, I suppose. And making a difference because they want the world to be a better place. And so, and if you start with the, oh, the trouble of this world, if only everybody could speak with each other on video calls, I'm going to change the world to make it. That's a completely different thing from, well, I'm going to discuss my LTIP characteristics clause 7.1.3.2 on the something, something. So it's a different world. And the latter are the disruptees and the former are the disruptors. You see, Ken, I mean, you started this interview saying that you'd kind of reached cru cruising altitude, but it strikes me that resting on your laurels is is just not you. That is not that is not what makes you tick. I think the I think the, the I think the nature of change, it, 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 it fascinates you, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I, I, I quote uh, those people in that famous Mandela trial. You know, Life is wonderful. As far as, as far as I'm concerned, I'm lucky enough to be at 30,000 feet now with plenty of fuel, I hope. Uh, God willing, and where will this take me? I, but I, but I'm not driven by the burning ambition to get to something. I, getting to cruising altitude was the was was the burning ambition. Well, well, the, the ambition, I guess, is also about meaning. Giving back is a big part of your life. Philanthropy is, I guess, another part of the, I suppose, the chapters of, of the Ken Alyssa story, whether it's, you know, sort of donating to for the creation of, of the Alyssa Library at, at Fitzwilliam College at Cambridge, or, or indeed creating uh, new foundations for young talent. Um, but you've also said that there's a misconception that philanthropy is only about money. What, what, what is it, in your view? Right. So philanthropy, it's, if I go back to my spectrum of humanity, philanthropy at one end, evil at the other end. Philanthropy is actually about defeating evil. 
So there's, there's a lot of, there are a lot of biblical stories here. I won't bore you with at the moment, but I am. I remind you, I'm based for Westminster Abbey. But but the point is, philanthropy and philanthropists have to defeat evil people and 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 all that they stand for. And you do that in lots of ways. Yes, of course, it's about money, but it's also about leading by example. It's about changing circumstances. I was speaking to somebody yesterday who's a big prison reformist, and they they had to be rather wealthy, and they they are using their power and influence to improve the lot of women in prison, and ideally women before they get into prison, so they don't go to prison. Why do that? Because if we don't, why are we on this planet? We're not here just to take. So philanthropy is about setting an example in so much as it is about, about, about giving money. And I think one of the, I mean, it is literally, isn't it? It's love of fellow man. So it, it isn't about dosh. It's about love, a, a much better four-letter word. Is evil reformable in your view? I mean, no. No, no, I think evil has to be contained or destroyed. No, it's not reformable. Bad people are reformable. Redemption works for bad people. Bad is often a consequence of one's circumstances. You know, if you've got a horrible upbringing, you live in, a, in poverty, etc., etc., shoplifting doesn't make you, doesn't really define you as a bad person. You know, you're, you're doing it to survive. But evil people are the ones that harm others for the, for the pleasure of harming others. So, interestingly, at this juncture, it feels like a perfect time to ask you about the book that changed your life, Machiavelli's The Prince. M many, I mean, I, I, was, I was reminding myself of it. I have read it, loved it. I'm going to ask you a question about it. But one of the early words that Wikipedia uses to describe it is pejorative. Tell us about your ends, your means and your sense of the book. Well, I'm embarrassed to say it was required reading when I was at university. And I just could, never quite got around to reading it. So I read it rather late in life. And it was after I'd become uh, general manager, senior vice president of a, of a Europe-Africa Middle East operations of a company, computer company. And I, it was the best job imaginable for me. So I get this best job imaginable. And I remember the head of HR came to me one day and said, I have to warn you, but the, some of the people um, in one of the countries is doing their best to undermine you. And they're doing that. And I said, just get out, just get out. I've got bigger things to do than listen to tittle-tattle and village gossip. And I pursued my uh, strategy of greeting everybody, being loved by everybody, kissing babies, cutting ribbons at fates, and all the sorts of things that, that foolish leaders do when they take over a principality, in this case, uh, a business entity. And uh, of course, the but people- you never get fired from, I, I just, you never get fired for hiring. I understand this might well be the motto. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, but exactly, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I've got all these people, thousands of them working for me, and I want them all to love me. Uh, so, the, you know, the first, curse of the politician. And meanwhile, the people who hated me were busy undermining me. And as it got more and more difficult, I realised what was happening. I should have listened to the first chat. I had to deal with the evil people who were trying to undermine me. Had I read Machiavelli, I would have discovered that it doesn't matter how you get to be the boss, aka the prince, there are three constituencies, constituencies in your principality. One are the people who suffered before you arrived, and they will welcome you with open arms. The, the group who prospered before you arrived and they will do everything they can to get rid of you because they were doing well before you got there. And the vast bulk of people who don't really care who's in charge. And what you have to do is to deal urgently with that second group of people. And, and I give that advice to all incoming leaders and managers now, because if you don't, Machiavelli will be proved to be right. But of course, he asks himself the central question in The Prince, is it better to be feared or loved? And his conclusion being that it is better to be loved, but it's easier to be feared. So what does the kind of Ken Alyssa take on The Prince sort of take of that central, I guess, advice piece that he gives? I wouldn't have got where I am today to quote CJ by doing the easy. So love is worthwhile. Right, let's just finish the interview because we're almost out of time. But I love that your tip for life is to follow your heart and not your head. 
Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, th- th- this is a good example. The podcast, what we're essentially doing is two things. I'm, I'm giving some old wives tales mores to give people logic and uh, and things to grasp onto and so on. But actually, hopefully they're listening to the tone and the, and the sweep of my message rather than the detail. Trouble is, you go to school, you go to university, you get a job, you get an apprenticeship, whatever it happens to be, your head is filled with instructions and rules and protocols and, 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 and. And so when you come to a difficult decision, you try to work it out from all of those things. And unfortunately, they're probably incompatible and blah, blah, blah. Whereas your heart is you. It's you, the person. Everybody I know who's nursing a deep regret about something they didn't do in their life is because they follow their head and not their heart. And so it's quite easy to be. And whether it's whether it's falling in love and then not and then not pursuing it, whether it's the job that you really wanted, but your parents told you you ought to be a lawyer, you know, all those things, all that all those things, and all that happens is you get constrained. If it's somebody who's a divisionist who says this country it's impossible to get on if you're not white, and therefore and that's in your head and so you assume you can't get on. Actually, you know, follow your heart. It's it's so much more satisfying. I don't know anybody who's ever regretted following their heart. Very well said. So Ken Alyssa, thank you very much for joining me on Change Makers. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? Yeah.